I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ramdas's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more. The Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Welcome to Lama Suryadas's Awakening Now podcast. This podcast is an expression of our shared connection. We depend on you, our community of listeners, for support. Please go to mindpodnetwork.com/suryadas and you can either click on the donate button or bookmark the Amazon link. We get a small percentage of all of your purchases. Or you can go and sign up for a free trial with Audible.com. Your support will allow Lama Suryadas to continue to illuminate the timeless Tibetan wisdom. So again, to remind you, we go out singing and chanting and dedicating to merit, thinking of others, including all in our prayers and practice. We began with some prayers and chants and also, but the main practice is the naked awareness, natural meditation part of the session, the non-conceptual awareing of natural meditation, presencing, awareness, aware of awareness, not chanting, not radiating light rays, not praying for world peace, not healing, not radiating loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, equal to all the four Brahma Viharas or other virtuous practices we may do at other times. But here concentrating on the naked awareness practice of Dzogchen, Dzogchen, Dzogchen. Rikpa practice, just being. Kuntazampo's practice, Buddha's way. Natural practice, as it is organic practice, just being. Natural practice, as it is, leaving it as it is, as is. Three steps to the inherent freedom of being, as Longchenpa calls it. Inherent freedom of being. In his great Dzogchen trilogy from 500 years ago, 600 years ago, Rangsha, what's it called? The Rangdral Korsum, the great trilogy of the inherent freedom of being and self-liberation. Even the title could be enough. Not to mention the whole trilogy, which you can read if you can read Herbert Gunther's translations, that is. So, we just chanted a little and practiced praying, chanting, connecting with, exhorting, energizing, awakening the Tara energy, Tara, the female Buddha, technically a Mahasattva, Bodhisattva, but in English we say female Buddha, kind of the Buddha of America, if you like, here in the, I don't know what we should call it, the egalitarian era, the post-feminist era, where all are equal, male, female, and the other categories, if you know what I'm talking about. L, B, Q, etc., and the others that I can't remember. Never mind. 
all beings equal. Tara, the Buddha of America, beyond gender, masculine, feminine, or other. Why are we calling God he in, still in every prayer? And so forth. So why just call Buddha he? Of course, the teacher was uh, the, the, the progenitor, the source master of Buddhism in this cycle on this earth. 600 years ago, Shakyamuni, Gautama Buddha, the historical Prince Siddhartha, who got enlightened, Buddha, as we call him in short, the Buddha. Have you seen the PBS special called The Buddha? It's very good, two hours, excellent, narrated by Richard Gere, I think. Excellent. You can learn a lot about that. Or The Little Buddha, which you could watch with your kids, or I should say grandkids looking around the room. <laughs> Little Buddha by Bertolucci. Well, about the history of the Buddha and other things. Very interesting, beautiful. So that was the historical Buddha, who was an Indian, a male from northern India, born in Lumbini, now part of Nepal, passed away, died beneath a sal tree in Kashinagar, northern India, 25 and a half or 2,600 years ago. A historical teacher who lived till the age of 80, taught for 45 years after his enlightenment under the bow tree at 35. But the more transcendental principle that Buddha as an archetype embodies, the archetype embodying the principle of enlightenment is not male or female. There's no gender in the Buddha nature, in the clear light, in the divine. So Tara, female Buddha, Sakyamuni, or others, male Buddha, Amitabha, whoever you, you like, whoever your Buddhist superheroes are, Manjusri, Avalokita, Kuan Yin, is female form of Tara and Chinrezi, whoever. So over time, people to identify better with this principle and find it within ourselves and each other have sort of broadened the notion of Buddha, not just male Buddha, not just Indian Buddha, but the Buddha nature, the Buddhaness, the innate spirit, the Buddha nature, as Buddha himself said, all beings are endowed with the luminous Buddha nature, Buddha potential, Buddha-ness, Tathagata Garbha, Sugata Garbha in Sanskrit. That's an awesome war cry 2,600 years ago, long before feminism, long before democracy and communism and socialism, long before breaking the, ending the horrific caste system with its rigid stratification, which still goes on to some extent. Long time ago, Buddha was the first to educate women in mass in history. You look it up, check it out. See what his enlightenment, being the first tree hugger, actually produced after sitting beneath the tree and getting enlightened, what it produced in his society in his time. The first to educate women in history in mass. And of course, also he exhorted people to protect the environment, if you must, I'll explain. Not to pee in the waters, not to poop it by the streams and other things. To plant the tree every year to replace for resources used, he said, and so on. So this is pretty um, practical benefits of spiritual awakening, of enlightenment. So balancing contemplation and action, as they say in the mission statement here of the Garrison Institute, bring contemplation into action, into life, and so forth into the mainstream, into society, making a positive difference in the world. So we're practicing here. We're not just sitting here doing nothing. We're practicing Dzogchen non-meditation, as the late, great Dujim Lingpa said 100 years ago in his, his classic work, Buddhahood Without Meditation, Magam Sanjay. It's all there in the title. Pre-enlightenment, Buddha nature, before being meditated and on and realized. Buddhahood without meditation, just being, is already perfect. The great Tao, the natural perfection, the innate awareness, Rigpa with a capital A. Buddhahood without meditation, without doing anything. The uncorruptible, unchangeable, in adamantine, vajra-like, adamantine, unchangeable Buddha nature, our true nature. Unimproved by enlightenment experience, unruined by delusion, radical war cry of freedom beyond 
ordinary thinking, beyond conceptual mind, beyond the usual religious thought of the time, and perhaps ever since. Beyond theism, beyond relying on an other power, external, separate from oneself, ourselves. So here we're practicing trekjud, seeing through, being through, cutting through, if you like literal translations, cutting through duality, subject-object interaction, duality, cutting through the veils of illusion, and so forth. A little bit, a little bit of doing called non-meditation, gumme, Buddhahood without meditation, relying on the fruit, the, the innate Buddha within, not trying to plant a seed of enlightenment and water it for many lifetimes till it grows into a tree later and produces fruits, nuts and flakes in the far distant future, fruits of enlightenment. So here we're practicing, according to the Dzogchen natural meditation tradition, the three naturals, back to the instructions, just sitting, just breathing, just awareing, awareful, mindful, not mindless, attentive, incandescently present, presencing as a verb not looking for anything outside, although our eyes may be open, our ears may be open, but we're not necessarily listening for anything, we're just hearing, there's a difference. Not looking for anything outside, not looking for Buddha inside either, like the needle in the haystack, there's no Buddha in there either, let me disappoint you. The Buddha within ain't inside your body. It's not a thing, yet it's everything, it's all pervasive, it's spontaneously present and manifesting, as Dujan Rinpoche says in his great treasure house of the natural state, the Neluk Rangjo, treasure house of the natural state. You can try to read that. It's been well translated recently by um, Richard Barron, who translated Longchempa's Seven Treasuries. So not looking for outside or inside or getting stuck in between. In fact, not looking, just seeing, not listening for anything special, just hearing. As Buddha himself said, they say, in hearing there is just hearing, nothing to listen to, and no one hearing it. In seeing, just seeing, nothing to look at or for, and no one seeing it. That's anatta, the no-self, the famous no-self. That tough nut we try to crack in Buddhist philosophy. No separate independent self, everything interconnected, interdependent interwoven, interbeing, as Thich Nhat Hanh brilliantly calls it, interbeing. Not one. If there's one, there must be two. There must be some perspective, as Einstein also discovered, explained in his science way, mathematical way. So Buddhism doesn't like to assert oneness. This is interconnected, interdependent, interbeing, inseparability, tantra. The warp and woof, the warp and weft that makes the, the brocade, I don't know what I'm talking about as usual, but the, the two things that make the, the brocade, the weave, the warp and the weft that makes the weave, that's it. The warp and the weft that makes the weave, the yin and the yang that makes the whole. Not separate, like yin and yang, where one is inseparable from another, not like that black and white patisserie that's chocolate on one side and vanilla on the other side. They're very separate, like the Republicans and the Democrats in Washington with a big aisle between them, like the Grand Canyon, as we usually see things through our dualistic perceptions, us and them, me and you. What about me? If you win, I must be losing. Oh, no. Is there no other way? Is there no third way or fourth way? Win-win and other ways of thinking? I hope so. Non-duality, we call it in Buddhism. Not one. Non-dual, not two, not separate. We don't call it oneness. Not two in Buddhism. Or shunyata, badly translated as emptiness. More like mystery, ungraspability, subjectivity. 
impossible to assert what it is, including that it's a, just a dream. It's like a dream. It's not a dream. We can still discern between daytime and dreams at night. You know, daytime reality, waking reality, so-called, and night dreams. And even in dreams, we can discern between nightmares and good dreams. And even lucid dreams, we're awake in the dream and know we're sleeping and dreaming. Lucid dreaming, Tibetan dream yoga practice, etc. So like a dream, like a fantasy, like a mirage, like a sitcom, like a movie, like echoes, like clouds in the sky, like rainbows, and like dew drops on blades of grass at dawn, evaporating at dawn. This is how Buddha said to view this floating dewdrop-like world. In the wisdom scriptures, the Prajnaparamita Sutras, you can easily find this in the short Diamond Sutra, the eight similes of illusion in the Diamond Sutra. So here, practicing the natural meditation according to the view, meditation, and action. Oh, look. Do we have any of those Buddhist jokes and cartoons that we've been collecting to put up there? Have you put any up yet? Why not? It's so serious. <laughs> like the one, one of my favorite ones is where it shows some fisher people, I guess they're fishermen, on the frozen lake, ice fishing. I know some of you California types won't know what I'm talking about. Ice fishing on this frozen lake, maybe in Minnesota with those hats, you know, that are like covering everywhere, you know, and it's freezing and they're, they're like this and they're like four, three or four of them sitting around one hole in the ice and nothing's happening. Meanwhile, behind them, the fish are jumping like crazy out of a million holes. <laughs> Isn't that us looking for enlightenment, watching our minds? <laughs> even if nothing's happening that's not what we're looking for even if you stop thoughts you know there are pills for that it's not what we're looking for we're looking for freedom not blank <laughs> again as I mentioned yesterday that's why in this Dzogchen practice we're not talking about calming and clearing the mind we're not talking about positive states of cultivating positive states of mind of course in the general practice we do but in this just being we're not we're taking a break for a moment from all the doings and relying on the being just for balance the yin yang of things in being there is no karma there is no virtue and vice if there's no you, there's no you to vow not to harm others or not to steal we don't need to superimpose ordinary morality on top of it. Because if there's no you, there's no other in that moment of pure transparency. There's no other. There's no you to worry about. What about me? How does this affect me and us? There's no us in them and so forth. So as we're practicing the three naturals, back to the instructions in the form of sky gazing, eyes open and everything open in case you didn't hear me say that. And then it just means space mingling, not looking at the sky or looking for a porthole or a skylight or a window to see the sky. We're not sky worshippers. It means space mingling or just it's a metaphor for openness and awareness, decontracting, opening the aperture of our tight, congealed ego, our small self, our bubble-like being to the vastness of the ocean of being or ocean of awareness that this bubble-like mind, small mind is part of. Decontracting, sky gazing, not looking up. There's nothing up there that's not here, I'm afraid. If it ain't here, it's nowhere. And breathing out, of course, you're allowed to breathe in. That's very important also for the yin yang of things. But breathing out, a little more emphasis on the releasing, the letting go, the decontracting, the opening, the tight aperture or anus of egotism. Decontracting all that tension that's holding the tight sphincter together of egotism. Just think about how much energy is released that was holding together the atom when they split the atom. That's where nuclear energy comes from, right? Well, that energy is tied up in holding the ego together. When you let go of that, there's infinite energy available. It's like nuclear. It's, it's uh, inexhaustible, as we might observe when we're around so-called enlightened masters 
or mistresses. Very, very marvelous and spontaneous and hard to describe. But there's no energy tied up in holding it, their act, their ego together. Some of them don't even sleep, it seems, because they don't get tired. There's no resistance. They're one with the flow. As I said in the meditation, we let go of resistance. There's inexhaustible flow and energy. So this is the, some of the principles of Dzogchen non-meditation, or just seeing through, being through, tregchud, as we call it in Tibetan, or namkai naljur, sky-space union yoga. Namkai naljur, mingling with the infinite, sky-space union yoga, the Dzogchen practice. The view, nothing more to do. The meditation of just getting used to it and the action of spontaneous, proactive Buddha activity. Selfless, proactive, spontaneous Buddha activity, not reactive, karmic, egocentric activity. This is the view, meditation, and action of the great perfection. The view of things just as they are. The metaphor is the sky gazing, eyes open and ears open, nose open, everything open, sensitive and receptive, not eye plugged, not closing your eyes. You know, if you have to close your eyes to meditate, what about your damn ears? Something might come in there. You better get earplugs. What about your nose? You might smell something, God forbid. What about your body? You might feel something. You better numb out. That's the opposite direction that we're going here. And then what do you expect to find when you're in that lack of stimulation state? It's like a samadhi tank, you know, a sensory deprivation chamber. So what? There's no Buddha in there either. It's just you and the sound of your pulse beating in your temples. I've been in those. Same story. Consciousness and its objects. So here... Open, aware, everything open, principles of openness, awareness, present awareness, attention, not just spacing out, not just dazed. There's a difference. It's very precise, very present, on the spot, on the dot, in the moment, precise and clear, but not suppressing thoughts or feelings or sounds or sights, not looking for anything, therefore there's no distraction, nothing to concentrate on in sky gazing, so nothing to be distracted from. If you're concentrating on your breath and you forget, then you get distracted by other things. But when you're just in panoramic awareness, there's nothing to get distracted from. There's nowhere to fall. There's nothing outside of it. Like they say in the Mahamudra meditation tradition, pith instructions, when they release the doves from the ship in the middle of the infinite sea, there's nowhere for them to go but land back on the ship eventually. You don't need to keep them on a string. The thoughts and everything, the mental activity has nothing, nowhere to go but resolve back into the conscious mind, consciousness from which it rises. We don't have to iron out the waves of the ocean to make the ocean better. Those are only superficial waves of the ocean. There's an infinite depth, big, deep ocean, untouched by those waves of thoughts and feelings, momentary ups and downs. So allowing everything to arise and dissolve and appear and disappear in its own way, all impermanent, selfless, ownerless, governorless phenomena and noumena or mind stuff, karmic arisings, karmic concatenation, simply rolling on without interference or manipulation, without judging or evaluation, without liking or disliking based on attraction and aversion, just allowing some people call it witnessing. I don't know if that's the right way of looking at it. That sounds a little separate, but it, it will do. It's better than being totally lost in, in your thoughts. At least witnessing your thoughts is a step in the right direction. But we could go further and, and dissolve, you know, witness the witness too. There's no witness. If you really look back at the subject, the witness, there's just a continuum of subject and object interaction. Anyway, you've got to look, and that's why we do the self-inquiry, look into who or what is experiencing the nation of identity, who, what is present, who's doing what around here. That's why the principle of mastery is it. It's not what happens to us, but what we make of it that makes all the difference. 
You can't control the cards you get in life, but you can learn how to play the game better. You can't control the winds of karma that are blowing, not just individual karma, group karma, species karma, global karma, but you can learn how to set the sails and navigate better. You don't have to be blown away like a dead leaf before the storm. You could even tack up wind, use the force of the opponent to drive you in the direction you choose. As uh, somebody mentioned, Dylan asked yesterday about, shall we have no intention or no direction? That would be just one more extreme. That would be like nihilism, that nothing is better than something. No. The middle way of balance. Sometimes effort, sometimes effortless, sometimes work, and sometimes off or play or vacation, etc. If we really looked into intention, of course, everything depends on intention and motivation, as it says in the Mahayana Buddhist teachings. Action is important, but intention and motivation is even more important, karmically speaking. If you really look deeply from the Dzogchen point of view, intentions and motivations and planning are also spontaneous enough, so one can just do that without resisting or worrying about it. So don't get hung up in static, rigid fixedness either, or trying to do nothing, or sitting without moving for an hour. That's not our instructions here. Maybe you've noticed that I feel comfortable to move also, although I can sit for long periods of time without moving. And I've been trained that way in the East, where it wasn't that comfortable. We didn't have all these cushions. So now it's, this is like an easy chair in my living room. It's so comfortable with all these cushions, not to mention heat. And um, I don't know, there's no mosquitoes and tsetse flies and cockroaches and snakes and ants and... I don't know that I mentioned tsetse flies yet, and other things crawling up your nose and you vow not to move. Here it's very comfortable. It's air-conditioned in the summer, mostly, and it's warm in the winter, and everybody's nice here, and you know there's no, there's no um, loud music of Indian weddings playing right in the next room like there was when you were going to retreat in India, or hunking outside by the clanging, you know, taxis and you know the, the world war ii jeeps and trucks that are out just out there delivering your your gruel and stuff like that and this is very comfortable and yet still somehow not quite satisfied oh here we are we've taken a vacation from our busy lives somebody's shopping for us and cooking for us and cleaning for us and you know i don't know what day of the week probably wednesday they change the sheets and towels for us and just they're, they're stoking the boiler for us and they're plowing for us we don't have to do anything almost just follow the you know when when the bell rings you salivate i mean you go to the next uh, activity what a great vacation. And nobody's taking attendance if you, you know, of course, if you follow the schedule, it's conducive to what we're trying to do here. But you can also, you know, miss some activities or take walks in the woods or exercise, whatever you do. Take a nap after lunch. I don't know. We're not policing you. We're all adults here, mostly. And yet we're still not satisfied. We always want something else or different. Isn't that the nature of dukkha? dissatisfactoriness, the first noble truth, dukkha, dissatisfaction, never satisfied. When we're home, we wish we didn't have to do all those things. Now we're here, we don't have to do all those things. We wish, we're still wishing. You know, what does the song go? Wishing and praying and hoping and complaining and, you know, snoring and snoring. And this is our life. It's one constant duke, a strife. Anybody remember that song? Am I dating myself? Da, 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 da. <laughs> You're too young to remember. Don't we have any other old singers here? If only things were different, then I'd be happy. Anybody know that tune? I'm not talking about music. Anybody know that, that thought, that line of thinking? That's dukkha. That's why Buddha said the first noble truth, you know, the first fact of life from an enlightened perspective is dukkha, the satisfactoriness, not suffering exactly. The unconditioned, the... Uh, 
unenlightened life is full of dissatisfaction, dissatisfactoriness. That's why I like to translate dukkha as skruka, the screwed from the first. But of course, the third truth is that there is another kind of life, the enlightened life. We don't hear enough about that. So it's not just that life sucks, life is suffering. It's the unenlightened life that's dissatisfying. That's an important point. So here, as we're practicing getting used to the wisdom of allowing, of releasing, of letting go and letting be, of equanimity, of detachment, spiritual detachment, calm and clear, yet, yet warmly caring and interested and friendly, appreciative, open, as his end master said, eyes like ice, uh, but heart of fire. Let's not forget that part. Not just being an icicle. As we're practicing here, let's not forget that, you know, there's other ways of life and things to do when we leave here or even when we get up off the cushion, you know, when we take care of our, our daily business, the meals, the bathroom, how we deal with the other people online, even if we're keeping silent, we're communicating all the time, and so on, and being mindful and attentive and loving and harmonious and gentle and all the things we talked about in the 10Ss in the beginning, softness and, and so on. So balancing the being that we're cultivating here with the doing, with mindful living, with responsibility and conscience, not just consciousness, conscience. So any questions? Lama, that you mentioned yesterday when you were talking about um, Togyal, um, just briefly, I wondered if you would kind of reiterate what you said. Um, you started by saying, bring your own. I just wanted to touch on that from the point of view of the three practices of Dzogchen to contextualize what we're doing here, the main practice, the Tregshud, not to talk about what comes next, which kind of evolves out of it naturally. That's why I was saying, bring your own. I think, did you also say what you see is what you get? <laughs> yes. Okay. That's it. Thank you. And what you got is what you see. This is based on, you know, the usual ground of karmic and, you know, perception and we experience what we, how we perceive things to be and so on. But um, it's like kind of a, Togyal. Some people translate as leap over because it's kind of like the next step, but it's more like a leap. Yes, Judy. I have a question. Um, I don't know if this is too weird or not, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, it's related to karma and to rebirth. Um, and so I guess my question is my understanding that a lot of karma has to do with intention. So mm -hmm. it's not necessarily what you do, but the intention behind it. So, you know, given the realms of existence that we have, how does rebirth or karma get, karmic seeds get purified in, like, for example, the animal realm where there is no intention? Um. It would be probably an exaggeration to be, be so sure there is no intention, but in the animal realm. But there's less consciousness and planning, probably, so there's less intention. But um, karma, excuse me, since you're asking a somewhat technical question, you know, when you mentioned the six realms of being and Buddhist cosmology, and now you're talking about the animal realm, not humans. Mm -hmm. So um, then... It's interesting to look into how karma is explained more technically, like the fourth things that make up karma to be a, have a full result. And then you can think about how you purify it. For example, if you intend to do something, uh, let's just, for argument's sake, pick something naughty, something bad. Let's characterize it so we have a picture, not something subtle. So let's say you intend to hurt or worse, kill somebody. Not that you would ever do that, but who knows? It could happen. Even humans sometimes do this, not to mention animals. So you intend to, but you don't quite accomplish it. So that's an incomplete karma. Or you intend to, and you accomplish it. You do the thing, and you go away thinking they're died, and they didn't die, incomplete karma. It's a bad karma, 
But it's only, you know, like two-thirds bad karma. It's not a full karma of murdering in the first degree. Let's say you intend to, you plan to, you do it, and they die. And then you regret doing it, and you repent, you vow never to do it again. It's an incomplete karma. It may be murder in the first degree, but you got rehabilitated. That's why there are prison sentences, paroles, and other things, even in the ordinary law. Not to mention karmically. You with me? Yes. So if you rejoice that you killed somebody having all those parts, like you have four parts, that's the complete karma. And it probably make, uh, uh, conditions you to do it. You know, you can get away with it. You could do it again. Even at the brain synapse level. Let's talk modern. You know, when the, whatever they are, I don't know, finger painting, electrons cross over the synapses. They make little channels just like water makes erodes little ditches. And the more they go in the same path, the more it conditions you. We've discovered that. That's brain science. So this is about conditioning. And so karma is a you know, few thousand years old understanding of this. What goes around comes around and makes a deeper rut that you get stuck in. Just like the more erosion, the more the water flows in that rut and not somewhere else until you get a Grand Canyon and you can't get out of your rut. Conditioning, habit. Bad conditioning, positive conditioning. When you routinize your positive habits, like let's say exercise or, or something, then you, you know, more easy, natural to do that. So karma has to have these four parts. You can read about this in the chapter in karma in my book, Awakening the Buddha Within. And of course, you can read about it in Buddhist texts, the four parts of karma necessary to have a complete karma. So then how do you purify that? So let's start from the end. If you regret, repent, and vow not to do it again, you're starting to purify it. Thus, we have Vajrasattva's practices, confessions, acknowledging it, others vowing not to do it again. Not just saying a mantra that magically purifies. So, of course, we also have mindfulness that prevents you from, you know, sort of um, doing things that you think will make you happy but really won't, like bad karma. Like, you know, you think, I don't know, I don't want to be judgmental. Just looking around the room, you think getting drunk is going to make you happy, and then you end up keeping doing it, and it sort of makes you unhappy, and everybody else in your family around. And there are worse things than booze, you know, more addictive. You think taking heroin is going to make you happy, and you know what happens. So, see what I'm saying? So, you can also mindfully or awarefully, intelligently refrain from the actions, as you know it won't make you happy or succeed or whatever you think is going to benefit. So then you get back to the motivation and intention level where we started as being, you know, introspecting and scrutinizing your motivation and intention. Why am I, uh, you know, making this um, donation to the church? You know, is it to get my name on the wing of the hospital or on the wall of the church or, or what? You know, is, is it a pure motivation to help? Is it a mixed motivation? Is there attachment and egotism in it and so on? You know, why am I being nice to somebody and not to the other person? You know, this kind of bias and partiality, which is sort of contradictory to unconditional loving and to impartial equanimity, equal to all, kind of Buddha love, Jesus love. You with me? So that's how you purify it. So how does it carry over, whether or not you believe in, in future lives, it, it carries over by this notion of conditioning. The brain synapses, you know, it, the habits form and the paths get stronger, deeper, whatever. And the conditioning is physical conditioning, is cellular body conditioning, is habit, is thought conditioning, even brainwashing. You know, there's all kinds of conditioning. And we're all very conditioned. The bad news is we're very conditioned. The good news is it's only conditioning. It can be reconditioned. I don't know, like your hair. It can be deconditioned. Like some people's hair is gone. No, it can be deconditioned. You can get free of conditioning, not just replacing. This is the principle of karma in Dharma. You can replace negative karma and habits with positive karma and habits, which brings you a better rebirth, but not freedom. That's reconditioning, not deconditioning. It's not freedom. You're in the good habits now, but you're not free. 
And the deconditioning is another story where you're free in the moment. You can get anywhere from here. You don't have to take that course that's been laid down. There's no rut because you're so in the moment or you're so free or the, you've uprooted so much of the seeds or the ruts, whatever metaphor you're using. You've thinned so much the veils that it's just a sunny day. We say, oh, it's a sunny day. There's no clouds. Of course, a meteorologist would say, oh, there's a thin veil of I don't know what, haze. But just from our point of view, it's like no clouds. Like you look at the Dalai Lama, he seems like enlightened enough, right? Actually, we don't say technically he's a Buddha. He's a, still a Bodhisattva. So he still has some veil of illusion somewhere, technically speaking, probably. You know, maybe he thinks Buddhism is the best. Maybe he thinks being a monk is better than lay people. Maybe he thinks you can only get enlightened through Buddhism. You never know. Maybe he has some kind of male superiority because of where he grew up. Who knows? So purifying, thinning the veils. So reconditioning and deconditioning. That's why we have relative practice to recondition and absolute practice to decondition. I hope that's helpful. I know that was a long answer, but a little technical. But this is important question you asked. So we don't just pray to God to purify us. We don't just pray to Vajrasattva. We don't just chant the mantra. It's not the mantra that purifies. That only purifies a little. But the four powers purify of acknowledgement and repentance and vowing not to do it again. Purify means turn us away from it. So it doesn't happen anymore. So we've dried up the seeds. You mentioned seeds in the beginning. We've sort of scorched the seeds or we've let the seeds lie fallow. We're not watering and fertilizing the seeds anymore. They can't grow, the karmic seeds, next year or next life. Just like if we clean up our act now, our children won't have to suffer from our you know, unfinished business. So that, those are next lives, even though it's not the way you're thinking of egotistically as your Judy next life. See? Yeah. We clean up our seeds now, you know, like uh, the opposite of the parents that commit suicide, the gift that keeps on giving, and then somehow the children commit suicide too for some other supposedly totally different reason, but same suffering. Thank you very much. Last question. Yes. Hi. It's nice to see you guys again. I think you may have come from the furthest away. Remind me, what crazy island or, or, or where are you hi hiding out outside of the American law? Approximately 23 minutes away. <laughs> in Austin, right down the river. <laughs> Do I have you mixed up with the people yeah. that live in Costa Rica or oh, really? Nicaragua or somewhere? You I don't know. That is funny. Me too. Sounds good. I... Well, nobody knows where Austin is except for some criminals here, so <laughs> it doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. So I'm that other person. And, okay. Um, I, I'm sorry. I, I have a question. This is a little weird. The, um, recently there have been uh, reports that um, we are really run by our microbes. Microbes? You know this, yeah, microbes. We are like the vehicles for the microbes. We have... Yes. It, well, not just in our gut, all over our whole body. Of course. And they make all our decisions. And we think we have free will and we don't. And... You know, it's it's all it's all in the service of their lives so that they survive. So, um, what do you think about that? Um, I haven't really uh, read about that. I mean, I hear similar things. I didn't hear that specific or read it. Um, I don't know. I have a different theory that we're all robots, and that, you know, we're programmed and um, we don't really remember or know who programmed us and we're just living out the program. So in a way, it's not that different from what you just said because the point is that we, we don't, whatever you said, we don't have free will or something else is running us, which is, you know, sort of from the Buddhist point of view, we're starting from the problem and looking into the cause, not trying to ontologically find out what, you know, what started the world. You know what I'm saying? So Buddha said, there is suffering, so what is the cause? And if you find the cause and you uproot the cause, then the end of suffering. So I think from, you know, the microbe view or what we live for the microbes or the microbes run us view or we are robots is, is not that different. And the we are robots view may, it's kind of a silly scientistic view really of karma and conditioning. Mm -hmm. 
but none of them seem to have, neither of those, and there are other similar theories, have in there, you know, a first creator or some, you know, or it's all scripted already, or there's somebody up pulling the screens. I mean, in your story, the microbes are pulling the strings, but there's no queen bee microbe I, that I didn't hear yet, or no. God, divine microbe that created, yeah. Yeah, that created all the microbes. So yeah. there's still this kind of fluxy, ungoverned thing happening. So how do we deal with it would be my microbe kind of, you know, my microbe mentality. I don't know about microbes. I mean, if you asked me what a microbe was, I couldn't even tell you. Is it the tiniest kind of virus, or is it a bacteria, or what is it? I don't. I don't even know okay. in terms of bacteria, yeah. virus. It's just right. They... So, what's a microbe? It's a small organism. Yeah. Excellent. Good definition. <laughs> it's like one of my friends went to ten doctors to find out he had like pediophilobitis. Not exactly. And when I said to him, "So, what is that?" I never heard of that. He said, "Pain in the foot." That's what I told them I had when I went in. That's what they told me like six months later in Latin. Yeah. That happens. Yeah. I don't know. What's your real question in that, though? What's your real question? I mean, that, that's a fine theory like all other theories. It's, uh -huh. so, it's so conditioned by where it's coming from. You know, it's like some people say um, uh, cancer is a successful, um, you know, evolutionary plan. And everybody goes, uh-uh. You know, but from the point of view of cancer cells, it is. Right. You know, it's like Hitler was a successful, um, whatever, leader from the point of view of, megal you know, of him, of megalomania. He rose from being a house painter or whatever he was to being the leader for many years. So it depends what perspective. That's my, so when you talk about the different realms of existence, it's a matter of perspective. So Buddhist teachings are that water, that things are not what they seem to be. It all depends on how you experience it or name it or relate to it. So from the human point of view, water is something that we need, that we drink, that whatever you want to say, you know, the, it keeps our body, you know, fills our body mostly, whatever it is. But from the fish point of view, water is something different. I mean, I don't know if fish drink water or, you know, what they, but the point is they live in it. It's their medium like we live in the atmosphere and the oxygen. But from some other point of view, from the hell, I'm just going back to Buddhist cosmology. From the hungry, the hellish point of view, it's fire and you drink it and it burns you because you can have, you know, because whatever you experience is sufferingful. And from the divine point of view, it's amrita or elixir. The same thing, water. So if that sounds just like a mythology, just think about, I don't know, something that you're very familiar with and how somebody else views it very differently. Like your mate, how you view him very differently maybe than your mother does. I'm just making a joke here. Or more to the point, like you're enjoying this wonderful Dzogchen winter meditation retreat, but your mate, your parents, your boss, I don't know, your sister, thinks it's like hell, it's like a concentration camp. <laughs> the same thing, because you can't talk and you can't, all those other things that the bad cops told you on the first night. Again, as I said in the Dharma talk, it's not what happens to us, but what we make of it that makes all the difference. So it's our state of consciousness, how we hold or interpret or experience things that, determine, that determines our experience. Mm -hmm. Thus, it's, uh, everything is subjective. This is very challenging. I think that's one of the best translations of the word shunyata, so-called emptiness. Things are not what they seem to be. Everything is subjective. It's very challenging, that thought. What is not subjective? What is objectively true or real? So let's just pick on something. It's easy to come up with. Murder. How do you say that's subjective? Well, I could give you an example, but you think about it. Is murder always, I don't know, you know, is killing, let's not say murder, because that's already got a pe pejorative spin to it. Is, is, is killing, you know, objectively bad and to be avoided and, you know, good people don't do it? Well, there's always that 
you know, the story of, or the question of, do you kill one person to save? No, let's not others? get too complicated. Oh, okay. Are we just, you know, are we just talking about killing humans? What about killing animals? What about killing chickens and so on? Oh, so killing isn't always bad. Oh, I didn't think of that in my everything is subjective objection. Let's go a little more into it. Oh, even with humans. What about killing a fetus? Some people think it's bad, some think it's good, depending on when, and so on, yes? So again, if I just put out there the thought which you can work on everything is subjective, you can come up with your own examples or arguments. So, you know, it's important to think about this. Because you might conclude that things are, even if it's not everything is subjective, is totally clear to oneself, it might loosen some of our clinging to the idea that we know what's what, and this is this, and that's that, and this is right, and that's wrong, and us, and them, and this, and that, and all the dogmatic views, and strong opinions, and clingings, and fixations that we have. That's the point. To loosen the clings, fixations, stuckness, dogmatism, not to mention assumptions and expectations, and not to mention fantasies, projections, and mistakes. I mean, there's a lot of levels to illusion. <laughs> so I'll just put this, everything is subjective. That doesn't mean nothing matters. You know, like, is death always bad? Say, death, death is terrible. Maybe it's not so terrible for your pet if the five vets have told you that you have to put them down, that they're just miserable. And you can't do it because of why? Because of the pet? Or because of you? Who are you keeping them alive for? Of course, these are ethical questions, much debated. Buddhist teachers often will say, you never kill anything. Don't put down your pet. It's a little too black and white for me. I think you have to think about what's the most loving and compassionate decision. Not to kill or not to kill. It's not that black and white. Or somebody who's been on the machines for a year or two or three. You know, do you pull the plug or not? Anyway, I'll let you think about those things. These are very uh, tough gray areas of life, which is most of life, really. Not so black and white. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Lama Suryadas's Awakening Now Hour. We very much appreciate your support and hope you will continue by going to mindpodnetwork.com slash suryadas and link to the donate button or go to the Amazon.com link for all of your purchases. Namaste. Shabbat